and welcome to Stories of Scotland, a podcast about Scottish histories and mysteries. I'm a beloved and loyal terrier, Annie. And I'm a dead old corpse, Jenny. (laughs) This week we are looking at a lovely, gorgeous wee tale about one very good boy. Possibly the best boy of them all, Greyfriars Bobby. Once again, we're bringing you an episode that takes place in Greyfriars Kirkyard. Although this week's story is not spooky at all, it's rather the slightly sad but overall adorable tale of a wee dog in Old Reeky. Ah, the big Old Reeky, our wonderful capital city of Edinburgh, where we've just returned from a marvellous research trip. For anyone unfamiliar with the phrase, Old Reeky, it means Old Smoky, and this harks back to the days of thick air pollution and smog, which used to dance around Edinburgh like a big cloud of chesty coughs and black bogies. This story begins late one evening in the mid-1800s. Jenny, we know what twilight looks like and feels like. But what do we actually know about Edinburgh in the 1850s? I know far more than you would anticipate about Edinburgh in the 1850s, Annie. The streets are lit by gas lights, each one giving off a dim, flickering sphere of warm light. They are gentle, glowing orbs breaking up the darkness of the street. Between them lie large, unlit patches. And in these shadowy places danger lurks. There's always a threat of robbers prowling the city streets and smugglers sneaking in the outskirts. In the gloaming hours, between the sun setting and the thick blanket of nighttime, there is a workforce who stroll out and protect these streets. These are the diligent men of the night's watch. Each one comes out with steady strides and holds in his hand a large gas lamp. The men are dressed warmly and smartly as they are members of Edinburgh's city police. Edinburgh's night watch has deep roots in protecting the city. Men would guard the watchtowers and ensure that folks paid their tolls at the toll booths. In the early 1800s, the Night's Watch would be out with a keen eye to prevent grave robbers from digging up freshly buried bodies, for there was good money in that very grisly business. But by 1850, the Night Watchmen are mostly looking out for fires, ready to sound the alarm if they spot any threatening lick of flames. Despite this vital role, their wages are low, And so, some of them are also members of the fire brigade. If they find any drunk or disorderly folks out late, then they arrest them or move them along. And perhaps it was not uncommon for a wee nip of whiskey to keep them company for the graveyard shift. However, there are always dedicated members of the Night's Watch who can be trusted to be sober and wise. And these are the dogs. The dogs of the Night Watch are pretty important members of the team. They are able to sniff out disturbance and danger in the shadows, keep the men company, wag their tails, and generally encourage the men of the Night's Watch to remain awake for the duration of their shift. 
And it's in this dark graveyard shift that we find a night watchman named John Gray. And he is in dire need of a dog. See, John was not always a night watchman. Before moving to Edinburgh, he had been a gardener, just like his father. If you got him around plants and soil, then he was in his element. Perhaps he dreamed of tending to other folks' orchard trees and roses. Or maybe he even wanted to help maintain the beautiful parks that were blossoming up across the city. But alas, John Gray couldn't find gainful employment amongst Edinburgh's greenery. And so he took a position in the Night's Watch to keep his family afloat. It was hard to recruit for the Night's Watch because the wages were so low that not that many folks wanted to apply. Mm. John was supporting his lovely wee family. He had a wife named Jess and a wee boy who was also named John. Within the Night's Watch, John was walking on a local beat and he decided that he would be benefited by having a wee dog as company for him. And so enters a stunning wee Sky Terrier, allegedly named Bobby. John Gray was assigned to the area of St Cuthbert Parish, which includes Greyfriars Kirkyard, and he lives really close by, so this is really his local ground that he's walking with this new little dog. And this little dog, Bobby, is mayhaps not what you'd expect of a police dog. He's not a large and intimidating kind of dog. Nor does he have the look of a sharply intelligent hound or big muscles that will save your life from impending doom. He's no lassie, that's for sure. (laughs) Yet there is a clever gleam in his deep black eyes that speaks of endless loyalty and companionship. Though he stands only about 25 centimetres or 10 inches off the ground, his shiny nose is highly alert and can warn his colleague of any potential threats. His four little paws patter gently upon Edinburgh's cobbled streets with the intention to protect and be a very good boy. As Annie said, Bobby is a Sky Terrier, so he has a long grey scraggly coat, and this beautifully frames his delicate wee face. His little ears are pricked up to the noises of the twilight in Victorian Edinburgh. Sky Terriers, as the name suggests, come from the Isle of Skye, where they were bred specifically to be working dogs, with catching vermin their main task, that and doing the dishes. These dogs were not bred for doing the dishes. But they were popular beyond the shores of Skye, as Queen Victoria was famously fond of the breed. Because of this, these little doggies became quite popular during the Victorian period. Ah, so while Bobby may not be the stereotypical dog of the Night's Watch, John Gray thinks that he's just perfect. But the question of the story is what will happen to Bobby after the unthinkable comes to pass? For in December 1857, John Gray was treated by the police surgeon Dr. Littlejohn for tuberculosis. <gasps> Just a few short months later, on the 8th of February 1858, 
poor John succumbs to the disease and dies aged only 45. He passes away at his home, which are rooms in Halls Court in Cowgate, Edinburgh, which is only a five-minute walk from Greyfriars Kirkyard. And so this is where John's body is laid to rest, in Greyfriars, in the heart of Edinburgh's old town. Wee Bobby was confused, for his watch had not ended. He still desired to be the shield that guarded the realms of men. Yet his man, John Grey, was no longer present in this realm. And so Wee Bobby heads down to Greyfriars Cemetery to find his departed master. But all he finds is a grave. And with nowhere else he'd rather be than by the side of his beloved friends, he begins to guard the grave of John Grey. And in doing so, discovers his new doggy calling in life, shifting from a devoted dog of the Night's Watch to a gracious graveyard guardian. We may imagine this graveyard shift to be a quiet, solemn and personal affair. A small dog beside his colleague's grave as a wee invisible labour of love. Years pass, with every day the same as the last. However, Bobby's peaceful civilian life was about to be rudely pulled into the realms of fame and fortune and all the trappings that those involve. For as soon as the Victorian press catches a whiff of Bobby's selfless devotion, they want to make him a star. They saw the story as a diamond in the rough, rough, rough. (laughs) (laughs) The press start hounding poor Bobby. Oh no, hot off the porous. (laughs) Oh no. They must have got a hot lead. Stop. <laughs> the newspapers finally noticed this wee dog after over six years of him sitting beside the burial of John Gray. By this point, we're in 1864, so let's have a look at what the papers say, bearing in mind that they are calling our wee Bobby by his formal name, Bob. Some would say that should be Robert, but I'm not going to argue with a newspaper man from 170 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) My attention has for some time been attracted to a case of a canine fidelity which has not yet found its way into the newspapers, but which is much more remarkable than most cases of the kind that are on record. One day, some five or so years ago, Several burials took place in that ancient and famous place of old Greyfriars Churchyard. The whole of the following night, a little terrier dog whined mournfully amongst the graves, and, under the shelter of an old pillared tombstone, that dog has remained in the graveyard almost ever since. I say almost ever since, because... After he had watched every night for about a year, Bob, the terrier in question, had an unfortunate event. While out to retrieve his supper, he was run over by a passing cab. He was nearly killed. However, he was taken up and nursed tenderly. Bob recovered in a few weeks and soon returned to his old quarters in the kirkyard. 
Since then, he has taken an occasional night's lodgings with some of his acquaintances, but he prefers to be among the graves. Nobody knows whose death he mourns or where he comes from, although the general belief is that he came from the country along with a funeral procession. I saw the modest little animal today coming out of Greyfriars Gateway, but he is now looking old and grey, although he yet keeps his tail high and trots cleverly across the street to get a little creature comfort in the shape of biscuit or a sandwich from the publican or the baker. Bob never leaves the vicinity of Greyfriars. With a somewhat intimate friend, Sergeant Scott of the Royal Engineers, Bob sometimes takes a walk to the end of George the Fourth Bridge, but there his head nods and wags farewell as he trots back to the graveyard. Unlike many of his species and his betters, Bob was never known to do dishonest action and is believed he would rather starve than steal. I make no excuse for giving you this interesting little history of certainly the most remarkable and faithful animal I ever knew. There's a few wee facts in this reporting that we might want to remember for this story later on in the episode. Mm. Firstly, that Bobby, or Bob as he was known, was looking old and grey in 1864. Interesting. Secondly, that he is neither deceitful nor a thief. So we know him to be an honest fellow. <laughs> he's just got like a bunch of candy bars stuffed inside his scraggly coat that he's got a pinch <laughs> from the local Tesco's. <laughs> they did not have Tesco's in Victorian Edinburgh, Jenny. And if they did, he would certainly not be pickpocketing out of them. <laughs> But it's not until 1867 that things really took off for wee Bobby's career. A newspaper reports... A singular story was told yesterday in the borough court on the occasion of a summon in regard to a dog tax. Eight and a half years ago, it seems, a poor man named Grey was buried in old Greyfriars churchyard. His grave, unmarked by any stone is now scarcely discernible. But, during all these years, the dead man's faithful dug has kept constant watch o'er the grave. And it was this animal for which the collector sought to recover the tax. Ah, so the villain of this particular story is the doggy tax collector. It's a pretty mean society, Annie, when even the dogs have to pay tax on their incomes. Um, but that's maybe why Bobby was stealing chocolate bars from Tesco. <laughs> I want to highlight that Bobby never stole any chocolate <laughs> from the Tesco that did not exist in this time period. Plus, also, Bobby had retired from the police, so I feel like he should be exempt from tax because he's already done a lot of public service, you know? Well, this is the problem. It's not the dog themselves that pays the tax. Oh. It's the person who owns the dog who has to pay. Well, I, I suppose that makes sense. <laughs> the dog duty tax came into Edinburgh in 1867 with the intent of identifying stray dogs and taking them off the street to put them down. Oh, no. Similar methods had come into place in Glasgow, 
and took the lives of many dogs, which is really sad. Mm -hmm. Dog owners had to pay a tax on their dog, usually around seven shillings, and only farm dogs were exempt. If you got caught harbouring an untaxed dog, then the fine goes up to five whole pounds. Ouch. So it's a high risk not to pay your dog tax. Ah, okay. So the issue for poor wee Bobby is that John Gray cannot pay the dog tax from beyond the grave. Unfortunately not. But luckily, our Bobby has other allies who remain in the world of the living. We need to bank on these people protecting Bobby. We need to be a little bit worried for his life. Because if poor little Bobby is classified as a stray dog, then he may be destroyed, as the newspapers would put it. So let's get back to the story and find out who Bobby's friends are. James Brown, the old curator of the burial ground, remembers Gray's funeral. And the Doug, a Scotch terrier, was, he says, one of the most conspicuous of the mourners. The grave was closed in as usual, but the next morning, Bobby, as the Doug is called, was found lying on the newly made mound. This was an innovation which old James could not permit, for there was an order at the gate stating, in the most intelligible characters, that Dugs were not admitted. I'm not sure how the wee Doug was meant to know this, as it can read. Bobby was accordingly driven out, but next morning, there he was again. And for the second time, he was discharged. The third morning was cold and wet. And when the old man saw the faithful animal, in spite of all scolding, still lying shivering on the grave, he took pity on him and he gave him some food. Give that dog a bone. (laughs) This recognition of his devotion gave Bobby the right to make the churchyard his home. And from that time to the present, he has never spent a night away from his master's grave. Often in bad weather, attempts have been made to keep him within doors. But Bobby will dismally howl to make it known that this interference is not agreeable to him. And so... He has always been allowed to have his way and stay by the grave. So I do find it unusual canine behaviour that a dog wouldn't want to stay beside the fire in dreadful weather, as I've had dogs in the past who don't even want to go for their walkies in a mild rain shower because they're such cowards. (laughs) Annie, I don't want to go for walkies in mild rain showers. (laughs) (laughs) However, I'm not in any way an animal behaviourist, so perhaps some dogs just prefer the outdoors in all weathers. Or perhaps, Annie, this one very faithful dog would sacrifice his own warmth and dryness for his loyal companion's memory. So a wee side note, I came across a very pro-Bobby researcher who tried to prove that this account was true by looking at the Edinburgh weather reports after the death of John Gray to see if on the third night there was bad rain. Wow. And shockingly for February, there was a massive dry spell (laughs) in this period of doggy morning. Though I think maybe the second day there had been a little bit of rain, so they think it could still line up with 
this report. But I love that people have looked into such detail. I mean, the fact that you're saying pro-Bobby makes me think that there's anti-Bobby, so can't wait till we get to that part of the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, unfortunately for Bobby, his rain or shine attitude does not go unnoticed by the dog tax collectors. Bobby has many friends, but the tax gatherers have by no means proved his enemies. A weekly treat of steaks was long allowed to Bobby by Sergeant Scott of the Engineers. For more than six years, he has been regularly fed by Mr. John Trail of the restaurant Six Greyfriars Place. Bobby is constant and punctual in his midday visits, guided by the sound of the time gun of the castle that his supper is ready. I find this really funny. It's just like Pavlov's dog. You know, when the (laughs) psychologist rings the bell and the dog assumes that it's going to get fed, so it starts salivating. Except for Bobby, instead of a bell, we have the one o'clock time gun at the castle, which is so fitting for this story. The time gun at Edinburgh Castle was introduced in 1861, and it was used by ships to set their clocks. Also, I love that Bobby hears this massive bang that echoes across the city and then trots along to the cafe for his lunch. Likely a wee pie. And the time gun is still set off every day at one o'clock in Edinburgh, isn't it? Yeah, it's fabulous wee bit of tradition that keeps on going. On the grounds of harbouring the wee dog in this way, proceedings were taken against Mr Trail for the payments or the tax. The defendant expressed his willingness. Could he claim the dog to be responsible for the tax? However, as long as the animal refused to attach himself to any one person, it was impossible, he argued, to fix the ownership. Thus, the court, seeing the peculiar and unusual circumstances of the case, dismissed the summons. The old curator, of course, stands the next claimant in line to Mr Trail and yesterday offered to pay the tax himself, rather than have Greyfriars Bobby to allow him his full name put out of the way. These men are arguing that though they care for Bobby and they feed him, he's not their dog. They might love him, but he hasn't committed himself to one of them. Nevertheless, they are offering to pay his fines so that Bobby is not taken away as a stray and put down. Interestingly, two nearby residents of Greyfriars, uh, Taylor and an upholsterer, who had seen Bobby in the graveyard and had also grown very fond of him, had offered to pay the dog tax. However, because it's acquitted, they don't need to. This is so cute. It's like it's the I am Spartacus moment of this story, except they're they're queuing up to pay for Bobby's freedom. It's very sweet. <laughs> Yes, so like I said, the summons are quitted. Nobody needs to pay, though many I am Bobby's owner men did step forward. Some unexpected consequences arise from this trial because Bobby is now the centre of the limelight. The response was phenomenal. The story was picked up by almost every newspaper in the country and soon Greyfriars Bobby was more than just a local oddity. 
He was a national hero. But fame, Jenny, it comes at a price. Just two weeks after the initial article about Faithful Bobby was published, the Inverness Courier reported that The little dog of Greyfriars Churchyard has been in a state of sad bewilderment during the last week. Visitors have poured in upon him in the hundreds. And the little fellow, a grey-black terrier, says to them all, as plainly as any sharp little dog's eyes ever did say, What do you want here? Oh no! Poor wee Bobby in his quiet mourning is now being inundated with visitors. The public renown of this faithful animal has shown itself in a tangible forum. One of the first to take notice of the story was Mr William Chambers, the Lord Provost, whose known fondness for the canine race at once prompted him to assume the position of protector of wee Bobby. The dog has been graced with a collar, and at Mr Chambers's insistence, a provision for duly feeding the creature has also been made by his lordship. The Lord Provost is essentially the Mayor of Edinburgh. They are the head of the City Council, and amazingly, Bobby now has the most powerful man in the city wrapped round his little paw. Not bad going for a terrier in mourning. But this really shows how Bobby truly grabbed the zeitgeist of the time. All of old Ricky and Scotland had become so enamoured with this dog that... Mr Gourley Steele has painted an excellent picture of the dog and his home. He is represented as prone upon the grass, his nose between his forepaws and the whole attitude that of affectionately clinging to the sod. A flat tombstone, which serves as his larder, is shown beside the dog, and the castle, lit with the morning sun, fills up the background. It is an admirable and enviable work of art. I mean, what we can see is an alright engraving, a little copy of the painting... So we'll pop this picture up on our socials so you can all see this famously good boy. But it does seem that this fame wasn't all it's cracked up to be, as the Aberdeen Press and Journal laments. Odd little old rough-coated Bobby. He has fallen on evil days since he became celebrated. He has not the old piece at the side of the grassy bed of his old master. The times were better, Bobby, when you were less famous, when you could mourn alone and eat your dinner without being wondered at, and lay by your old master's eight-year-old grave, and before newspapers fought over you and Lord Provis decorated you with a collar of honour. Lo, what tragedy, what tragedy! So we're seeing a lot of (laughs) melodrama build up around Bobby. I don't know what you're talking about, Annie. (laughs) In both his status as a tragic mourner of his lost colleague and in his role as a local celebrity, Bobby is bringing many people to the Greyfriars area where these tourists may treat themselves to a wee pie from Mr. Trail. But alas... All good boys must come to an end. 
and for wee Greyfriars Bobby. This was five years after he shot to fame. He passed away on the 16th of January, 1872. The following day, the Scotsman reported, Mary will be sorry to hear that the poor but interesting dog, Greyfriars Bobby, died on Sunday evening. Every kind of attention was paid to him in his last days by his guardian, Mr Trail, who has had him buried in a flower plot near Greyfriars Church. His collar, a gift from the Lord Provost Chambers, has been deposited in the office at the church fate. Bobby was believed to be about 16 years old when he passed away and have been looking over his old companion's grave with loyalty and devotion for a whole 13 years. That is a very long time in dog years. It is. In fact, according to the American Kennel Club's How Old Is My Dog In Human Years calculator, for a small dog, this equals about 64 of his 80 years spent mourning his lost friend. Wow. But while Bobby was gone, he was in no way forgotten, as the article concludes. Mr Brody, we understand, has successfully modelled the figure of Greyfriars Bobby, which is to surmount the very handsome memorial to be erected by the munificence of the Baroness Burdett Coots. There were already plans in motion to memorialise wee Greyfriars Bobby, and this is the same statue that we can see of him to this day. The monument is a slim granite fountain, topped with a bronze statue of Greyfriars Bobby. Over the years, a tradition of touching or rubbing his wee metal nose has evolved. I think quite recently, tour guides started encouraging it, as it's believed to bring good luck. However, the rubbing of Bobby's nose is causing irreversible damage to the statue. So, if you do visit Bobby, instead of rubbing his nose, perhaps touch his wee ears or head instead, as it brings the best of luck to everyone if this statue doesn't have its little nose rubbed off. However, the years of nose rubbing means that this loyal Sky Terrier statue nose has lost its aged patina and has become golden and polished. It's quite fun to have a look at. Golden and polished? Just like the myth of this dog, Annie. For the history of Bobby is shrouded in shadows, lies, deceit, dodgy doggy dealings and dirty money. If anyone wants to hold on to the traditional story of Greyfriars Bobby, now is the time to switch off this episode. Thank you so much for listening and Slangeva. Also join our Patreon Slangeva. <laughs> <laughs> but that's right, because it's time to take the legend of this good boy and put him out in the doghouse. While Greyfriars Bobby really captured the nation's hearts and imagination, one man became obsessed with taking this straggly dog down. His name was Thomas Wilson Reed, and in 1882, he wrote in his dreadful book, How can a silly hoax be twisted into a solemnly believed reality? Hmm? How, in fact, 
May a well-clothed lie be looked upon as the naked truth. Hmm? This was perhaps never more vividly illustrated than in the case of the poor dog locally known as Greyfriars Bobby. The lies as reported are 1. That after the last offices for the dead had been performed, the dog placed himself on the newly filled up grave. 2. That for months the faithful animal had, night and day, lain upon its supposed master's resting place. 3. That this was one of the most interesting and instructive instances on record of canine affection. 4. That it was to be regretted that the name of the poor dog's late owner, although every inquiry had been made, could not be found. And 5. That consequently, the animal's previous history could not be ascertained. Hmm? This is an interesting point, because in the late 1800s, there were still big questions about who had actually been Bobby's owner. (sighs) Believe it or not, they hadn't really pinpointed which particular grave Bobby was attached to. Allegedly, the John Gray story was imposed on the wee dog because it roughly fits the dates. This common story was reinforced by 20th century novels and even a Disney film about Bobby's life. And so all of that media made it seem like there was only one story that fitted. However, there definitely was a dog and this is one of the stories about him. So it just happens to be the main one. It doesn't mean that it's not true or that perhaps one of the other stories about Greyfriars Bobby might be true. Anyway, Thomas Wilson Reed continues, Bobby appeared in the midst of a blaze of popularity. The newspapers gushed columns about the faithful dog. Those who knew better laughed in their sleeves during all this roaring rapture. <laughs> But in the end, the power of the press was duly triumphant. The Lord Provost of Edinburgh looked into the matter and found the story trustworthy to the sentimental heart. After the Lord Provost, everybody, of course, followed. (laughs) One day, a poor, half-starved, dark-yellow mongrel was run over by a passing vehicle and rather severely injured. This disaster, having occurred in the neighbourhood of old Greyfriars Kirkyard, was happily observed by a tender-hearted gravedigger who took the dog into the kirkyard, placed him under a tombstone raised a little from the ground, and altogether behaved so kindly and tended so well to the dog that he soon got better. Doubtless, This was the first kindness the poor dog had ever experienced in his evidently hard-up career, and Bobby took favourably to his new master and his fairly comfortable quarters under the tombstone. During the day, he paid visits to the houses of a neighbouring publican where he not only got food, but was baptised Grey Friars Bobby. 
At night, however, he returned to the graveyard. Yet here is a story of canine fidelity that has no existence, magnified into a public demonstration and a city monument, and placed on record as a tale to be told to generations yet unborn. Well, well, well. The gullible gossips have got a story after all. And Edinburgh, well, it's got a new fountain. Wow. So, uh, so there you have it, Annie. This very angry man has laid it all out. The truth about Greyfriars Bobby finally spread bare. Well, Danny, absolutely everyone knows who Greyfriars Bobby is. And no one knows who Thomas Wilson Reed is. So I know who won this argument. And he has paws. I think that Thomas Wilson Reed may just have been a wee bit jealous of Bobby, who had friends, fame, fortune, and most importantly, a fountain. (laughs) Every time he writes Bobby's name, he puts it in quote marks. So I'm going to do the same with Thomas... (laughs) (laughs) Gloat about this wee Doug's fame all you like, Annie. But unfortunately for you... Thomas Wilson Reed was not alone in his (laughs) scepticism. A few other newspapers also dug into the story a little bit deeper and began to pick it apart. And they also point to broader research on graveyard dogs that sceptics believe may have applied to Greyfriars Bobby. You see, there does seem to have been a strange Victorian-era trend seen across Europe of similar stories to that of Bobby's. And for some reason, Bobby just took the doggy biscuit when it came to the believability and popularity of his own story. There's even a fair amount of evidence pointing to the fact that the original Bobby died quite soon after the big story broke. If you remember... Uh, when he was first reported on, he was already being described as grey and old-looking. But such was his popularity, no doubt with the local restaurant's owners who were enjoying the influx of tourists hungry for a sighting of Bobby and a steak pie. He was discreetly replaced with a much younger Sky Terrier, Bobby 2.0, ensuring that the tourists continue to mark Greyfriars Kirkyard as a stop on their travel itineraries. What are you even trying to suggest here, Jenny? (laughs) Do you, like me, believe that Greyfriars Bobby was a faithful companion to a deceased night's watchman? Or do you believe the lies that poor Bobby (laughs) was an opportunistic imposter pulling on the heartstrings to get a few free steaks and a couple of pies. Well, you know, Annie, Victorians are famed for the romanticisation of literally everything. And we all know how much dogs like bones. And as we know, Annie, Greyfriars is packed to the gunnels with bones. Yuck, you are a fiend, Jenny. <laughs> now, normally, I'm highly sceptical. But my heart, it sings to me that Greyfriars Bobby was just a very good and a very loyal doggy. Nah, Annie, nah. I think you're barking up the wrong tree altogether. (laughs) Bobby and Bobby 2.0 
are nothing more than imposter dogs sent from the big puppy marketing department to soften the hearts of Victorians and encourage more of them to take dogs in as pets and integrate them into British family life, thus propelling dogs to become the favoured household pet of Britain and big puppy marketing, securing ever-growing sales through the generations. I genuinely can't believe that you're willing to consider aliens and ghosts as being factual, but not darling little Greyfriars Bobby. Who even are you, Jenny? (laughs) I'm a cat person, that's who I am. (laughs) (laughs) I love the story of Greyfriars Bobby so, so much. I think there's just enough evidence. From looking at the death certificate of John Gray to reading the various accounts of eyewitnesses. It's a beautiful tale of the connection between people and animals. A special bond that lasts forever. I don't care if there's a couple of embellishments and perhaps an extra dog in this story. (laughs) I still love it. And I think that Bobby teaches us a wonderful lesson about how much a dog can love with all of its heart and how we should love our pets in return in the same way. Thank you all so much for listening to our wee show. We really appreciate it. If you would like to help your two favourite independent podcasters, that's us, as we research, write and release this funny little show, then you can head over to our Patreon. For the price of a bag of dog treats a month, you can gain access to loads of extra Scottish content while also helping us survive. Yay! Yay! (laughs) I am currently going through a fun phase of telling some old traditional Scottish folk tales on there. They're usually between like 15 and 20 minutes long, so it's like entire little mini storytelling episodes, which are really fun. Please also rate and review us on whatever app you listen to us on. It all feeds into the all-seeing algorithm and helps others find our show. Thank you so much to all our current Patreons and also to all of our new ones. Amanda, Mark, Madara, Sam and Cynthia. Thank you all so much, you gorgeous folks. I would like to take us all back to ancient Edinburgh long past, when the large hill overlooking the town, Arthur's Seat, was surrounded by rich and beautiful woodlands. Within the forest, we are, my friends, the white stags and hinds. These white deer are a marvel of folklore and exist in nature through leucism. The white deers are sometimes considered as messengers between this world and the supernatural world. So it's our choice as these gorgeous white deer if we should dine with the queen of the fairies or prance around in front of a hunting party of the King of Scotland. You see, we deer are also associated with the monarchy and are a symbol of great fortune, so they all want a little chunk of us. In the evenings, we drink our deer quarry cocktails and dear it iron brew. 
and we eat sourdough bread with our cheesy fondue. All right, I'll give you that was actually some of them were all right, yeah. Spaghetti bolognese. I'm so proud of spaghetti bolognese. I'll tell you that in a second. And we have cookie dough for dessert. Our favorite game is stags and antlers, which is a bit like snakes and ladders, but with much more risk. Ow. Our life is a real fantasia. Hey. So I was so proud of the pun spaghetti bolognese. I thought that's a great playground joke. What's a deer's favorite pasta? Spaghetti. That I googled spaghetti to see if anyone else had thought of this joke. <laughs> And and a, a website selling tops with spaghetti straps had misspelt it. <laughs> and I investigated because I thought this would be really clever as a misspelling if the tops were like spaghetti strap tops made for deers. But they weren't made for deers. So I felt like I held on to this as my, my own original joke. <laughs> You know, Annie, I don't think anyone's going to take that off you. So congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, Slanjava. Slanjava. <laughs> Do we know if he's Scottish or English or anything? I think he's probably from Edinburgh, so he's both Scottish and English. <laughs> ah, born in Northern Ireland. Well, would you look at that? Oh, no, no, he's not. <laughs> don't do that accent. That... One day, a poor, half-starved, dark yellow mongrel was run over by a passing vehicle and rather severely injured. Oh, if only it had been killed. Jenny! <laughs> you can't say that.